Members of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee held a one-off session with Lord Turner, the newly appointed chair of the Climate Change Committee. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We welcome you to our one-office or one-off evidence session with Lord Turner of Etchinswell. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Yep. Where is it? It's just south of Newbury, in the <coughs> North Hampshire Downs. And does it have some very special feature that made you choose that as part of your title? Well, I just happen to have a house there, and I've had a house there for 20 years. So well, that seems as, as, as good a reason as any. Anyway, you're very welcome appearing before the committee at this time as the chair of the Committee on Climate Change. Although, I, just, just clarify for me, because you're operating in a shadow mode at the moment. So are you officially the chair or the shadow chair? Uh, I think that's a complexity that I usually leave for others. I guess the correct description is that I am the shadow chair of a shadow committee, uh, which uh, will become uh, the committee uh, at the time of the Royal Assent to the Bill. I have to say that we are simply, as a committee, getting on with the job that we need to do, since we are uh, on the hook to produce some reports by uh, December uh, this year. So we need to proceed. Uh, as if uh, we are uh, in full operating mode. So I gather then from that that you have already met uh, as a, a committee as such. Are you able to give us at this early stage uh, a flavour of the type of thing that you've been considering? You said that you had to produce some reports yep. by the end of the year, so I presume you've been focused on formalising your work programme and how you're actually going to achieve your objectives. So perhaps by way of introduction to your work, you could tell us what you've been up to since appointment in your first meeting. Well, we have had two meetings of the uh, committee so far. Uh, those have built upon the very extensive work which has been done by the Secretariat, which has existed in a shadow fashion for about five or six months now, and which has done a lot of uh, basic uh, preparatory work. Uh, we have also held four different uh, stakeholder meetings, meetings with, with NGOs, with business, with interested parties uh, in London, Cardiff, Glasgow and Belfast, simply to tell interested parties that we exist and to exp explain our work programme. Uh, by December, we have to recommend what the budgets, the carbon budgets will be for the first three budgets of 08 to 12, 13 to 17, and 18 to 22. And I think it's very difficult for that timescale, which was originally meant to be September, but the whole thing has slipped a bit. It really can't slip uh, much more uh, because the government uh, has said that it will respond to our recommendations on the budgets uh, by March next year, and in fact by the time of the, the budget in the sense of the fiscal budget. Uh, and indeed, we are meant to produce our first annual report uh, on progress against the 08-12 budget by September next year. So I think that illustrates clearly that we cannot let uh, that recommendation on those first three budgets slip. However, we have also been asked, and we need to do this in parallel, uh, we have been asked uh, to look at some things which were not necessarily in the original intent uh, of the uh, Committee on Climate Change, but they have been added uh, to, to our task, one of which is to advise on what the 2050 target should be, whether that should be a reduction of 60% below 1990 levels or 80% or 
anything else which is above 60%, because the only constraint is that the legislation says at least 60%. And clearly, one wants to answer that before one freezes the budget for 2020, because the stretch in the budget of the target for 2050 carries that implication. We also have to recommend whether the budget should indeed be set in terms of CO2 alone or in terms of all greenhouse gases, including the other five main greenhouse gases. And we have to recommend whether and how and by what time international aviation and shipping should be included within the UK budget and target setting process. So all of that gives us uh, a great deal of work to get done between now and December. Let me ask you, you used the word recommend and advise in responding to my question. One of the things that this committee felt when we produced our report on the then draft climate change bill was that perhaps the climate change committee should have the equivalent status of the Monetary Policy Committee. Uh, the Monetary Policy Committee is given a target of inflation to hit by the Chancellor, but after that it gets on and works out its own salvation, as you know, in how it recommends money or how it directs monetary policy to achieve that objective. Now, what happens in your case? You, you do all this hard work and you come up with some recommendations and hopefully you haven't fixed it behind the scenes with the Secretary of State before you present your report. How are you going to maintain your independence? What are you going to do if the government turn around and say, yeah, no, we don't actually agree with this. We've, uh, we've, we think you've been a bit hard. We think we want to have a, a different set of targets and recommendations. Uh, are you going to sit back lamely and quietly and not comment at all? Or are you going to develop a state of independence and, if necessary, speak out? Well, I think it's worthwhile being clear about where the analogy with the MPC works and where it breaks down. At one level it works in the sense of this is an independent body set up by statute with clear independence from the government. Uh, what is different is twofold. First of all, of course, the Bank of England itself doesn't even recommend on what the target should be. Uh, it simply has to take the target as actually defined by the Chancellor. The, the 2% plus or minus 1% is not something uh, even advised by the Bank of England. It is defined by government. So at one level, in relation to what the target should be, the monetary policy of the Bank of England has less independence uh, than we do. In relation to then hitting the target, of course, it has total independence. Uh, but that is because... In relation to inflation policy, you can define one specific lever, uh, the interest rate, and you can give that to an independent uh, body uh, to pull up or down. You can't really do that with the Committee on Climate Change because otherwise you'd have to give them pretty much the whole of government policy because the levers that we could pull uh, cover building regulations, they cover speed limits, they cover appliance regulation, they cover the design of the EU ETS, they cover taxation, etc. So I think one can accept that you can't have a body for climate change which is given complete independence in pursuing a target. And so we end up with a remit which is twofold. One, to recommend on what the target should be and also necessarily to recommend on what the policies are going to have to be to have any chance of hitting that target. We, we can't end up saying what a target is for 2020 without also describing why that's a credible target. It is therefore a fuzzier issue uh, than the independence of the Monetary Policy Committee of the uh, Bank of England. There isn't a nice, clear design of who sets the target and who's responsible uh, for delivering it. 
Um, but that said, we are going to be robustly independent. We will develop our own point of view uh, on what the, a, the target should be uh, in order to achieve uh, the overall objective of the world uh, stabilizing climate change at below dangerous levels. Uh, we are going to set out a point of view on what the, uh, the budget should be. And then we'll have to see how the government responds to them. Now, I think necessarily, when the government responds to our recommendation, it would be odd if we didn't recommend back, uh, or, or if we didn't respond back. And therefore, if there were a very major divergence, uh, I think we would expect to see, and indeed Parliament would expect to see, and indeed I, I think the legislation requires that there is an explanation to Parliament of why the recommendations of the government have diverged from the recommendations of uh, the committee. Um, so I think there is going to be a dialogue on that, and we certainly hope uh, that the government is going to end up uh, with a, a formal policy which is very close to our recommendations. But I think one has to, to a degree, play that by ear within the, the context of the fact that we are an independent body which has been charged with, by government with having an independent point of view. Now, you've got a long track record of being involved and developing an understanding of climate change uh, issues. Uh, I've read a couple of your articles. You've not been, if you like, backward in coming forward in stating your views about climate change, the response to the Stern report, and so on. Um, are you going to be able to maintain, as chair of this body, the ability to continue to comment in the wider sense about climate change issues, particularly if having got agreement, if you like, from the government to the recommendations, the track is set, the direction of travel is clear, but then for whatever reason, for example, we started to deviate, mm -hmm. we dropped behind the target. Are you going to be able to stand up and say, something is going wrong and this is what I think it is and these are some thoughts as to how we get back on track. Well, I think that is clearly within the official remit of the committee because we have to present reports uh, each year on the progress towards the budget that we are then in the period of. So in September 2009, we have to produce a report uh, which all we will know then is, is the 08 result. So these reports will get more meaningful over time. Uh, but once we are up and running and we've got a couple of those underway and one can see the trend relative to the budget, we are charged by Parliament uh, within the bill of commenting upon the progress against the target. And it's pretty obvious that it's not the intent of Parliament that our report simply says, well, the target said this, the figures are that, you know, end of report. I mean, such a report in itself uh, would take uh, two lines. I think it's the unclear intent that if we are off target, uh, we will comment on the reasons why, which, which policies are working, which policies are not working, whether new information has given us a, a greater understanding. I think also those reports necessarily, we will try and look at where in the economy uh, we are off target if we are off target. It may be that what we will end up with is going faster in reductions in some area, be it transport or uh, uh, domestic residential buildings and uh, slower in others. Uh, and we will comment on that. So we will comment on the sectoral balance. We will comment upon wh whether we are on track. Uh, and that commentary will necessarily have to involve a point of view on if we are off track, why are we off track, and what, how we need to get back on track. David Lever. I just wanted to clarify one point of procedure, if I may, Chair. 
when you produced a report uh, for government, that report will become public at the same time that it goes to government, or would it go to government first and then um, leaving aside the issue of leaks? Um, um, I, would have to, I would have to remind myself, and I should know the answer to that, uh, it is there in the bill. The, the, the answer is it has to be laid before Parliament. I mean, the, 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 right. the, the report which we produced by the Secretary of State, there is no ability to, for it to be sat upon. I think there is some uh, time within it of when that has to go forward and when the Secretary of State has to respond on behalf of the government as to what their reaction is. But uh, these will be uh, public, re public reports, effectively. Yeah. Do you think Parliament ought to debate your report on an annual basis? I think that would make uh, absolute sense, and I would be, or, or at least it should debate the response of the government to our report. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily need to have, to have two bites at the cherry, but I think it is clear within the legislation that when the, uh, the government does uh, propose its response to our reports, that, that there would be a debate at that time. Kevin? As you know, following the, uh, the Bali summit, negotiations are now, are now beginning to uh, produce targets for individual countries developed and developing countries. How important do you think the Climate Change Bill is in this context in demonstrating you know, to, the, to the world that, that Britain, Britain means business here and really will achieve cuts in our emissions? Well, I think the bill is important as a commitment to cuts uh, in our emissions. I think the further decision which will come after our recommendation on the 60%, 70% or 80% will also uh, be important. And I think the budget, which is set for 2020, which by the bill has to be at least 26% below the 1990 level, uh, I think that will also be uh, important. So I think there is, within the bill, a, a clear statement on behalf of uh, the UK government and UK parliament that we are on a, as it were, non-negotiable uh, downward path of, non-negotiable internally, I didn't mean that uh, in an international negotiation sense, the, the fact that we are c committed uh, completely to reducing our carbon emissions it is set out there. And that is a useful uh, stance vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the rest of the world. It, it will be important also to back it up with achievement. I mean, there's only so far that you can build credibility in international negotiations by the forward commitments that you've made rather than by the proof that year by year or at least two years by two years or three years by three years you are on some sort of downward path. And I think that is the next challenge because at the moment, as we know, for the last four or five years, uh, we are pretty much flat in terms of our emissions and we need to get them on a downward path, I think, to build our credibility in international uh, negotiations. On the uh, question of renewals, yeah. renewables, as you know, the... Uh, the European Union has its 2020-20 target, as it were, to uh, yeah. secure 20% uh, of Europe, European Union's energy needs yeah. uh, from uh, renewables uh, by 2020. Now, would you like to express a view on what our target might be uh, within that uh, European Union objective and, and how it might be achieved? Um, I, I won't express a point of view in a quantitative sense on that target right at the moment, though that is something that we'll be thinking about uh, carefully during the course of the year. Uh, one of the challenges that we have, or one of the things that we think, have to think about uh, within the committee, is the extent to which we accept uh, international arrangements or European arrangements as, as it were, external givens for our work, or things where we might be, to a degree, 
recommending things which in itself carries implications for the UK's negotiating stance uh, within that. Uh, and that's going to be a, a tricky and, and not black and white thing to work out. Uh, for instance, uh, there is going to be a European emission trading scheme. We know something about the basic structure of that. Nobody would suggest we challenge that. But actually, what exactly that will be in phase three, how tight will be the national allocations, how much will be auctioned, how much not, is not yet fixed. And therefore, we will have to operate in an environment of, on the one hand, keeping an eye on what is steadily being agreed at European level, and at another level, where it isn't fixed, being aware that our recommendations might in themselves feed into that. Um, in relation to the 20% renewable energy target, that is now a clear commitment of uh, the European uh, Union and of the British government uh, to that. There are standard burden-sharing burden processes which the Commission will be working at, and, and those are, I, th I think one has some sort of guess, I'm not going to give the figure now of, of what that might uh, end up with for particular countries, and we will be having a point of view of where that where that is likely to be for the UK on standard burden sharing approaches and crucially what that implies for renewable electricity because the most crucial thing is that that 20% renewable energy target is a renewable energy target and given that it is much more difficult to achieve renewable uh, a, uh, energy outside the electricity sector it is going to imply a much higher figure uh, both at European level and at UK level in relation to renewable electricity. So I'm not going to give you a figure here, but it, that is absolutely, I think, probably at the, I can't remember whether it's the third or the fourth meeting of the committee, one of our key agenda items will be to go through the framework of international commitments that we have made, in particular EU commitments, and what that implies about the constraints within which we should operate. Okay, that's uh, as much as we can expect on that. But just one final question by me. Would you like to comment on the, on the benefit of feed-in tariffs? Well, I shouldn't say the benefit. No. Would you like to comment on feed-in tariffs? Well, I think it is an issue which is going to have to be looked at uh, at some stage, the balance between the, the ROC approach and the feed-in tariff approach. Uh, the renewable obligation certificate, the ROC approach, is, is a very uh, clear uh, economic theory way of making sure that you try to buy your, uh, your renewable energy at a least cost to the taxpayer. That is how it has been uh, uh, devised. Uh, and it can therefore have some advantages in terms of uh, achieving one's ends at least cost. Um, I think it is clear uh, right now uh, that so far it is driving less progress towards renewable electricity than the feed-in tariffs which have been applied by, for instance, Germany or Spain. Now, of course, you can turn around and say, yes, but they've bought their, their renewable energy at, at a quite expensive level and perhaps an unnecessarily high expensive level. So that is an issue which I do think needs to be looked at, the relative pros and cons of uh, feed-in tariffs uh, versus rocks. What I think is highly likely is that if you want to generate a large amount of small-scale, decentralized uh, uh, electric renewable electricity production as may be required within the zero-carbon homes commitment for 2016, which cannot be achieved entirely by insulation, which requires at least some degree of distributed uh, renewable uh, energy a, 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 a generation. Um, I think there's a really open issue as to whether the ROCs regime works for small-scale players like that. 
the ROCS regime is necessarily somewhat complicated. It establishes a reasonable expectation of a future market price, which is understandable to large-scale, sophisticated uh, players in the generating market. I think it is unlikely to work if we are going to go down the route of encouraging people, as in Germany, to put solar panels on the roof of their house and sell that to the grid. That may suggest that there is a mix of both policies may be required in the long term. Okay, I, mean, I think you may understand the cautious, but yep. presuming in, in due course at least. In due course, that is something we will look at. you in the committee to say, look, we've really got to get down this road pretty quickly. Yep. Get in due course, we will look at that, yes. Okay, David Drew, followed by Anne McIntosh and Lynn Jones. If we can pick up your um, point about trading and um, international carbon credits, this committee did uh, recommend when we did our report that uh, at least 70% of the uh, uh, impact on reducing climate change should be purely domestic. Uh, and you know, there were, and I think it's fair to say still are, concerns about yeah. using emissions trading. Now, there was an amendment in the uh, Lords to that effect. We won't embarrass you by asking you where you voted on I'll, that. I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, all right, <laughs> you tell us that. Um, so, so where are we in the great scheme of things? Okay. Um, I think it's important here to uh, distinguish the principle uh, and also the specific form of any uh, uh, amendment which is put forward, or in the, in the case of the Lord's Amendment, it has been passed, so the government now has the uh, decision as to whether to reverse that or to amend the amendment when it comes back to the Commons. Um, overall, uh, emissions trading uh, is a, can be an important part of uh, the overall armoury of techniques that we need to deal with this problem. The arguments in favour are that it should, in theory, enable us to buy emissions reductions at least cost, and that is an argument that can apply at the level of Europe, hence the EU emissions trading scheme, uh, or indeed at the level of the whole world. And I, indeed, I think it, the long-term pattern, probably our aim should be, in many sectors of the economy, to have a global emissions trading uh, system uh, with global caps. Now, we're not yet there yet in terms of global caps, and therefore we have something which is separate from the EU ETS, which is the purchase in of uh, emissions credits generated by reductions under CDM or, or JI projects. Again, those can be justifiable uh, on two bases. First of all, they can be a way of achieving emissions reductions at low cost, and secondly, they can be a beneficial flow of finance for the helping the movement of developing countries towards a low-carbon uh, economy. Um, and indeed, those reasons why one should be in favour of a, a emissions trading was why, in the Lord's debate, uh, Sir Nicholas Stern, Lord Stern, uh, actually said, look, do not constrain uh, too much uh, the use of emissions trading. However, I think uh, Lord Stern recognises, and I certainly recognise, uh, that in the long run, uh, you cannot uh, rely on emissions uh, trading uh, to achieve your reductions. And indeed, I said in my speech on that House of Lords Amendment that we have to work on the assumption that when we think about 2050, all of our reduction problem has to be domestic. Because by 2050, you have no good reason for believing that there will be cheaper emission reductions targets anywhere else in the rest of the world. 
If we are to uh, deal with this problem, by 2050, we will have to have the whole of the world on a downward path of emissions reductions and subject to binding caps. And at that stage, there is no sound basis from now looking forward to believe that we will be able to be a net buyer of credits rather than a net seller of credits. China may by that time not want to be a net seller. It may want to be a net buyer. So the only reasonable assumption for the 2050 target is that if we say that we must try and get our emissions down by 80% by 2050, we have to tell a story of a technological path whereby we and other uh, advanced economies can run our economy with 20% as much carbon emissions domestically as we have at the moment. So in the long term, we have to get the emissions uh, down, and that is why uh, there is a, uh, also an argument for being cautious about over-relying on the buy-in of credits on the path to there. There is a legitimate role for it in the first, second, and third, and subsequent budgets, uh, but unless we make progress domestically towards radical domestic cuts in the long term, uh, we're not achieving what we want to achieve. Now, that is the background, and that is why my own point of view is, you know, I, I am in favour in principle of emissions trading, but I certainly see the argument for making sure that we have an adequate level of domestic reduction as well. The reason why I actually spoke against the amendment in the Lords gets to the particular way that it is defined. If you define it as at least 70% of the reduction has to be domestic, you can produce a perverse result, which is this. Imagine two things that the committee might recommend. Suppose the committee recommended that by 2020, we should get an 18.2% reduction in domestic emissions and a 7.8% reduction in achieved by buy-in of credits, a combination of 26%. That, under the Lord's Amendment, is legal because it hits the 26% and it hits the 70%. Now suppose we alternatively want to recommend a 20% domestic reduction and a 10% reduction achieved by emissions buy-in for a total 30%. That is illegal under the Lord's Amendment because 20% is less than 70% of 30%. And that is why my argument was that those who wish to propose that we have a limit within the bill should define it as a minimum level of domestic reduction, not a minimum percentage of the total reduction which should be achieved by domestic. So if people wanted to come back and say that the minimum reduction by 2020 achieved domestically should be 18.2%, I 70% of the 26% minimum, I am much more sympathetic to that than to defining it as 70% of the total figure. I think it was simply technically wrongly designed for the objective which it is uh, seeking to achieve. Anne? Um, can I just pursue this? Because um, you alluded to the European... Um, emissions trading system, which is very much in outline, and we don't know specifically what it's going to say. Uh, you alluded to um, aviation shipping, and yet road transport is by far and away uh, the largest contributor. Um, my concern is that we don't know um, within the context of the, the, the climate change bill as it currently stands, is it doesn't actually set out what the relationship will be 
between a UK emissions trading scheme and a European emissions trading scheme. And it's my understanding that we could be faced with the possibility of having three separate domestic trading schemes, one for England, one for Scotland, uh, one for, for Wales, and possibly Northern Ireland, four. Um, so have you considered this in, in the committee? Okay. And um, if, if, if you have, uh, why didn't you perhaps look at tabling amendments to that part of the bill in, in the Lords? Well, can I explain that my overall attitude uh, to the bill going through the Lords was that I was not myself going to get into the business of tabling amendments. I think it is slightly odd to, as it were, rewrite your own job description. I think you have to leave that to other people uh, to do, albeit I did comment on that one uh, amendment simply because I, I think it could have been better written uh, as an amendment and I think it could have uh, perverse effects in limiting our freedom of action. Uh, you are absolutely right that legislation allows certainly Scotland, and I imagine you are also right in relation to Wales and Northern Ireland, to set up their own emissions trading schemes. Mm. Uh, when we were within in Scotland recently uh, and met the Minister for Climate Change, uh, he made it clear uh, that it was not their intention uh, to use that to set up uh, trading schemes within Scotland. And indeed, I think there may be disadvantages in setting it up at a, at a small geographic area le level. The whole logic of an emissions trading scheme is to uh, widen the geographic area across which you are searching uh, for least cost uh, emission reductions and uh, to, to be able to trade. So that, that there is something uh, not right about, about then getting it down to a very specific narrow level. So I have to say my present start stance would be although the legislation allows the devolved administrations to set up uh, their own trading schemes, I, I, I think they should be fairly cautious about using that legislative freedom. Within the UK, of course, we are now committed to two a, uh, trading schemes, one of which is entirely national and the other which is European level. The European level is the EU emission trading scheme, which covers uh, energy-intensive sites, large individual sites, which are in themselves large emitters of carbon. We are now also committed to the carbon reduction commitment scheme, uh, which will cover large energy users who have multiple sites, the, 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 the hoteliers, the retailers, the retail banks, where the totality of their organization's output is large, even though the output from one individual site is, is not large. Um, I don't think there is a problem with those two schemes. I think they have a clearly defined uh, separation. It will be clear which sites are member of which scheme and which are, are not. And I think there is a fairly clear defined relationship. It is a one-way street only relationship between the carbon reduction commitment and the European uh, emission trading scheme. So I think at the moment uh, we have uh, in those two schemes a, a fairly you know, coherent policy mix. I, I think one can accept that if one was to proliferate lots and lots of trading schemes, uh, one would have to look carefully uh, at that and about the, the, the coherence of the relationship between them. But I think at the moment uh, they, are, uh, they are coherently related. Uh, I might add w one extra point, which is within the, the, my comment on the last scheme. Of course, it's important within the European Emissions Trading Scheme to, 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 to realise that we cannot actually in advance define what is the maximum amount of buy-in which will occur from the rest of Europe to the UK. That is, the, that is not a policy variable uh, which the UK government or any other government can prefix within the scheme. 
uh, the amount of buy-in will be whatever the market uh, determines and will, will only become clear uh, as we move towards the end of, of, of a budget period. Are you prepared to comment just on the road transport aspect as opposed to, you know, should we not focus on what the biggest polluter is? Well, the, the road transport, um, I, I think one should be open-minded as to whether a emissions trading scheme is the correct way to go on that. Uh, there are a whole series of policy levers there. There is a regulatory policy lever uh, through the voluntary and possibly the mandatory a, uh, emission requirements on, on new, a, a, a new cars uh, being sold, uh, though I think it's notable that at the moment we do not have the equivalent on light trucks and heavy trucks. We have much more of a framework of policy uh, as it relates to the passenger car side of that uh, than to the light trucks and heavy trucks. Um, uh, we have the, the biofuels issue, though that in its course is, is, is contentious, uh, and we have fiscal instruments uh, such as the, uh, the, the, the uh, fuel duty, uh, but also in particular the new first year uh, vehicle uh, excise duty. Um, so I think one has to look you know, a, flexibly at all of those policy levers. What is clear is that transport is an area that we have to look very carefully at because if you look at the last uh, 15 years, the trends for industry, the trends for power generation, the trends for domestic emissions have been broadly flat. It is uh, transport, both in its road transport aspects and in its international shipping and aviation, which in the developed world have been driving increases. So we, we have to have a way of dealing with that and they are not covered by the, the existing trading schemes. Uh, yes, have, have you any, any thoughts on what measures need to be taken to ensure that the, um, the price of carbon in uh, carbon trading schemes adequately reflects the costs of carbon emissions and also um, what needs to be done to ensure that we have consistent and verifiable carbon accounting? Well, on the latter, consistent and verifiable uh, a, uh, carbon accounting, we will, uh, we actually were intending to do it in one of our first two meetings, but for scheduling reasons it's got a bit delayed. We, we will have uh, appropriate people coming to us uh, who can explain how the carbon accounting works and we will be going through the details because obviously when you set about an exercise like this, one of the first things you need to do is to... Um, a, uh, uh, assure yourself that the figures are, are complete and, and precise. Uh, and I should say on that uh, that there is, uh, there is both the, uh, the veracity of the carbon accounting and there is the speed at which uh, we get the figures and the extent to which they are subject to adjustments. That's going to be something we're going to have to think about carefully in terms of when it makes sense for us to sensibly to comment. I think the one thing I would say on all of that is that actually I think in relation to CO2 itself from energy use in developed countries, it's probably quite good because you know, we pretty much know how much gasoline, how much petrol, how much diesel you know, is burned, how much uh, coal is used at power stations, etc. Because given the nature of the fuels that are used, given the fact that many of them are subject to taxation regimes, or given the fact that they are burnt in concentrated amounts, those figures are fairly good. I think the areas which get much less certain 
is things like the other CO2, uh, the other uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, the level of precision uh, on some of those emissions is probably not as great as it is from CO2 energy. Um, and uh, the, uh, also the, the things like land use. So we are going to look very carefully at the, 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 the dependability of the data uh, which exists outside the CO2, the CO2 from energy uh, burning, uh, fuel burning, uh, which is probably the, the most precise uh, of all the categories. In relation to the cost of carbon emissions, um, as has always been debated in the economics of uh, climate change, there are, as it were, two ways uh, to proceed. There's either to try and work out what is the marginal social cost of emitting, emitting carbon, uh, and then to say, well, okay, I want to set the price of emitting carbon at that, uh, and the quantity is whatever the quantity is with that price. Or there is a way of starting from the quantity end, which is the UK is going to get its emissions down by X percent by 2050, by X percent by 2020. Therefore, we think the EU emission trading uh, system target uh, should be this. Um, therefore, um, the price is whatever results from that quantity constraint. Um, I have to say that I am somewhat more favourable to the latter approach than the former. I think attempting to work out with any degree of certainty the social cost of carbon uh, is an exercise where you end up with enormous uh, range. And although it also involves judgments, it's somewhat easier to proceed on the basis of saying we believe the world needs to avoid X degrees centigrade temperature increase. The scientists tell us that to avoid that with a high degree of probability we need to limit the concentrations to this amount. To limit the concentrations to this amount, we need to be on this emissions target. We are therefore going to commit to these quantity reductions, and once we've committed to those quantity reductions, the price is what the price is. Um, I think that is probably uh, the more tractable approach to this problem than trying to have a debate as to whether the marginal social cost of carbon in any one year is $40 or $50 or so many euros or pounds. So is that going to be done at a national level or and then try and uh, encourage other trading schemes to go along with that? Well, I think, I think necessarily um, <coughs> the European emissions trading scheme will be a European emissions trading scheme uh, and therefore a crucial part of UK policy on climate change uh, is for us to argue for adequately tight <coughs> limits within the EU emissions trading scheme, including appropriate rules within the EU emissions trading scheme about the buy-in of credits from the rest of the world. Because again, one of the things that determines to what extent we are indirectly buying in credits from the rest of the world is the extent to which the EU emissions trading scheme itself allows buy-in of credits from the rest of the world. It's why the, the buy-in of credits argument is very complicated. So with relation to the UK, we will be advising on the UK target for 2050 and for 2020 and for each of the budgets. We will be looking at how much of that is likely to be achieved by our allocation within the EU emission trading scheme but we will also, I am sure, be influencing UK government policy as to how tight we think the EU emission trading scheme uh, ought to be over time. But it is the case that one of the most crucial levers that we have in the energy intensive sectors is set at European level, not at UK level. And we, we have to 
work within that uh, and argue for an adequately tight approach to the, the EU emission trading scheme. David So can I be clear that, that you would support the auctioning of entitlements within the EU ETS? Yes, in principle, yes. Yes, in principle. Rather than yeah. free... Yeah. No, I, I, I think, in principle, we should head rapidly to total or almost total uh, auctioning of permits within the EU ETS. As any uh, economist would point out, anything else is simply handing out an economic rent to existing incumbents, uh, which uh, serves no, no good economic purpose. So we should undoubtedly head in the direction of auctioning as quickly as possible, which is indeed the UK government's stance. And what would you do with the revenue from the auctioning of the domestic trading schemes, which are a provision in the climate bill? Well, the, of course, the UK auctioning revenues will come to UK as well. I mean, these do not accrue at European level. They accrue at national level. And one of the things that we are required by the bill to do is to set out the consequences uh, for fiscal revenues of our climate change targets. And one of the consequences of that will indeed be uh, the stream of revenue that is going to go to government as a result of the auctioning uh, of uh, permits within the EUETS. So we will undoubtedly be involved in simply as a mechanical exercise saying, given what we think the budget should be, given what we're assuming the EUETS is going to be and should be, uh, and given the forecast that we will produce of what we think that will do to the carbon price, and we will be producing a, a, a forecast of what we think the carbon price will be, uh, we will then be saying that is likely to produce X billion pounds of revenue for the government. Now, what should the government then do uh, uh, with that? I don't think that is something that we will specifically recommend on. I don't think that one should necessarily think about that being hypothecated uh, for specific carbon reduction activities. I think it's important to realise where that revenue is going to come from. It is going to come from a higher electricity price than would otherwise be uh, the case. It's not free money. People have paid for it because uh, that will be the, the impact. That is the primary impact of it. Other prices will be slightly higher as well. Uh, and given that, I think it's perfectly reasonable for a government to be flexible as to whether it believes that that should be recycled on things which specifically drive down carbon reductions or whether it ought to be reflected in a somewhat lower level of taxation generally as a way of compensating people for the fact that they are going to have to pay higher electricity prices. David Taylor. The uh, Climate Change Committee is a hugely important organisation, isn't it? And whoever chairs it, it's a, a key post. You, you'd agree with that, presumably. You have beaten the path from the CBI to the doors of the House of Lords and that, that's been followed by others in, in your way. Those sort of circles, it's not uncommon, is it, for people to approach people rather than to actually officially advertise posts. Well, were you approached or were you, uh, did you apply and were you appointed? Well, the, um, the, there was an application uh, process. It was widely uh, advertised. Uh, I think, if I remember rightly, the headhunters rang me. That is quite normal in this process, that headhunters sit down with the clients and, the, you know, lots of names are put in as this might be a name who might be interested. 
but having done that, there was a panel under the normal Nolan processes which reduced uh, it to a short list. You would have to ask them what the short list uh, was, uh, but it had several they names on it. reduced it as a paper exercise or as a face-to-face -face exercise? Oh, there, no, there were, there were face to face interviews. I had a face to face interview with the appropriate the panel. Was, how big was the long list? I, I, I don't know that. It's not actually normal when you are at the end of the process to know what the exact uh, details no, you, were. So you found out since. No, I don't know how the long list is. Uh, I think the short list was about four or six or something like right. that. But you would have to ask uh, Mr. Mike Anderson, who was the civil servant in charge of that. But it was a, it was a clearly competitive process. Right. What do you think it, there was in your own background which the headhunters felt was uh, highly appropriate to this job? Well, um, I have actually been interested in the economics of climate change for many years. Uh, when I was at the uh, Confederation of British Industry, uh, I think I pushed the CBI and encouraged the CBI to take the issues of climate change uh, seriously. Uh, that was the time when the president of the CBI, uh, uh, Colin Marshall as he then was, uh, recommended, he, he uh, did a study on the climate change levy and obviously we uh, talked extensively about that. We produced reports, probably the first industry association anywhere in Europe to say that climate change was a reality and we had to respond to it rather than being the classic prior stance of industry associations which was to say well it may or may not be a problem but your key concern government should be our competitiveness. How so we engaged extensively with that. How yep. many years ago were you saying these things? But Ten years ago, yeah, 1998 when I was running the CBI I was doing that. Uh, I then produced a book in, 19, uh, in 2001 called Just Capital, which has a, a chapter in it called Green Capitalism, uh, which actually argued uh, that we did need stretching CO2 targets. It, it also did a very early form of the Stern Commission calculation, uh, and it said that the cost of this to the economy was unlikely in the long term to exceed 2% of GDP. Uh, subsequent to that, I... Uh, was on a, a task force put together by the IPPR t think tank, an Australian, uh, US, UK task force, uh, which produced recommendations ahead of the Glen Eagles G8 meeting, and it was a task force combination of scientists, uh, business people, uh, and NGOs who were involved in the climate change space. So I, I got more involved at that stage. So, um, so in addition to this, the, the, this range of skills and experience that you're relating yeah. to. What, what are the um, facets of your um, large work, as it were, do you think led you to uh, into this job? And to be appointed? Well, yes. I think it's a combination of, you know, I am a trained economist uh, and I have you know, input significantly to the debate about the economics of climate change. I mean, uh, I, I help Nick Stern a bit, so there was a credit to me in, in, in Nick's um, uh, forward. Uh, I have been for about a year and a half an economic advisor on climate change to the Sustainable Development Commission, which Jonathan Porritt asked me to do. Uh, I have written extensively on climate change. I have, for instance, you know, got extensive press articles responding to the Bjorn Lomborg uh, book. Uh, and I've also involved in business. So I think it was the combination of, well, three things really. It was a, a business experience, so I understand business. It was, as an economist who has been quite extensively involved in debates about uh, the economics of climate change and all those issues about discount rates and how we respond, which are in the, the, uh, the, the Stern Review, uh, but it was also, I think, that having been chairman of the Pensions 
Commission, I had been involved in an area of quite contentious public policy where it was perceived that the net result was a successful move forward in our policy reflected in two bills that have gone through both Houses of Parliament with cross-party support. So I think those were the combination of skills which it was perceived that I would bring to this job. You still chair the ESRC? I do chair the ESRC, yeah. And you're a non-executive director? I'm a non-executive director of Standard Chartered, yeah. Paternoster? Paternoster. Siemens? Siemens, yeah. UBM? UBM, though I'm going to come off that in about a month's time, two months' time at the AGM. How much of your time do you think those... Well, if you add up the formal commitments of all of those, they don't come to more than about 120 days a year, because if you add up each of them as written down, some of them do take more time than that. As described in the job description for the Committee on Climate Change, it said that this would take three to four days a month. I think it's highly likely that I would spend about eight days a month on it, and I have to say for the last first two months, I think I've probably spent about 15 days a month on it. So I will make a commitment of about 40% of my time to this, and that is quite straightforward to fit in with everything else that I'm doing. One of your earliest observations to the Committee this afternoon was that there was a great deal of work to be done by September of this year, which you just indicated. December, I said. Sorry, December of this year. Are you actually convinced that there will be time in your hectic life and your responsibilities in this place, in the ESRC, etc., to deliver on these very crucial early stages of the CCC? Well, yes, I think the answer is yes. I think if I was to stick remotely to the three or four days per month described in the job description, the answer would be no. But given that I've made it plain that I will put whatever is required into it, the answer is yes. Do you think you've been misled, or were the people that wrote that description... They were optimistic as to what could be achieved with a certain amount of time. They were deluded, perhaps, were they? I think it was an under-described necessary commitment of time. Ah, that's a useful phrase we can use in the future. Just before we move on, you mentioned your role as an economist. In the government's climate change bill final impact assessment, the range of costs of the measures which have got to be taken to deal with climate change appear to range from a low figure of $30 billion to a high figure of $205 billion. Do you think your committee might be able to refine that a bit so that we know a little more clearly what the costs are actually going to be of responding? Is that the total costs from now to 2050? Yes. Well, the answer is one may not be able to refine it very, very precisely, but what we can have an assurance, I believe, is that the total cost as a percent of GDP is not very large. And that was the key conclusion of Sir Nicholas Stern's, now Lord Stern's, analysis. He said that, and I agree entirely, and these are figures that he and I have debated extensively for quite a long time, that the cost to a developed rich economy of cutting our carbon emissions by, say, 60 or 80 percent by 2050 is likely to mean that by the end of that process, our GDP per capita might be of the order of 1 to 2 percent below what it would otherwise be. And I could take you through the logic of why it's not going to be 5 or 6 or 10 percent. It's going to be 1 or 2 percent. And the way to then think about that is what that means is 
that the UK would then have to wait till sometime between June and December 2050 to reach the standard of living it would otherwise have reached in January 2050, a standard of living which is likely to be about two to two and a half times the present level. That, that's what you mean when you say that you've given up uh, 2% or 1 or 2% of GDP in 2050. You, you've slipped uh, the pace at which, because, because GDP normally grows at 1.2% to 2% per annum. So I don't think we necessarily will be able to get it much closer than that because I think it's, 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 it's just not doable uh, to get it closer. But I think we should proceed on the basis that the cost is actually not very large. I mean, compared with you know, the great challenges of the 20th century fighting world wars where we were giving up 30 or 40% of GDP, uh, the amount of sacrifice of prosperity that we have to make to deal with this problem is really quite trivial. Noteworthy that benefits are defined in a much smaller range of 82 to 110 billion pounds. But anyway, we'll move on to Paddy. Well, not in the Stern Committee's report. In no, the Stern no, Committee's I didn't report, say it was in the Stern Committee no. report. It's in the government's own final impact assessment of the uh, implications economically of the climate change bill. <coughs> right. Well, I would be surprised that if you are thinking about the total adverse consequences to human welfare of climate change, which you avoid by mitigation, uh, I think they are potentially an order of magnitude higher than that. Anyway, we could have time really for you. Pay. Yeah, can, can we return to the work that you've got to do by the end of December? It's pretty daunting. Yeah. Three, yeah. three budget uh, periods. Yeah. And to comment uh, on the 60% target by 2050. Mm. Can you do it? Well, the answer is we will do it as best possible. You know, in an ideal world, I would have a longer timescale. If you look at the work of the Pension Commission, uh, we actually did 15 months before we produced a report which was merely descriptive of the situation, and then another year before we produced a report which said, here's what the policies uh, should be. I think, though, we are where we are. I mean, you know, so in an ideal world, it would have been great if the Climate Change Bill had gone through Parliament last year and the committee had been set up earlier and could get on with it quicker. But we are making a set of legal commitments to have a set of budgets which start in 08 to 12, so we have to get on and answer that as quickly as possible. Uh, so we are going very, very fast. The, 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 the Secretariat has been set up for four or five months now. It, it now has about 22 people in it. It's very high quality people and they're doing great work, so we have lots of stuff in, in, in place. Uh, so we have hit the ground running in terms of the, uh, the presentations that the committee has seen at its first two meetings. Um, but I, I accept entirely there is a hell of a lot uh, to do, and we will simply have to do the best we can by then. Now, necessarily when you're faced with that, you sometimes have to say, you know, some things maybe have to tentative. I mean, maybe we won't have fully bottomed out the other CO2 gases and we say, okay, all we can say at the moment is let's proceed on a CO2 budget to begin with, but we propose that we should produce a really high quality reports on the non-CO2 gases, the, GH the other GHGs, by a bit later and bring it in at that stage. Um, it may even be on the, uh, on the 6080 that we say, it should be at very least 70, but we want a bit more time to tell you before it's 75 or 80. I'm not saying we're going to do that, but I think there are ways whereby one can uh, 
uh, one can manage that, those problems over time. I think the thing that we clearly have to do, because it just needs to be done uh, to meet the requirements of the bill, is we've got to have uh, you know, those first three budgets fixed, and they've got to be more than 26% below uh, 1990 by 2020, but we've just got to, uh, you know, we've got to get on and do. So that's the bit which has got to be done uh, by that stage. Uh, would I like a, a, another six months in an ideal world? Yes, I'd love it, but it's not an ideal world. Okay. And what about extra staff? You've got 22 staff. Is that, is that the maximum? I think it, I think it is. It, it's, we're going up to about 24, 25. Um, I wouldn't want to put in more. There's, in dealing with a problem like this, there's, there's a size of team beyond which, if you doubled it again, you'd just spend so much time in managing the interfaces. I think it's a very high-quality team, uh, and I think it is the correct size for the job. And so I, I don't think one can speed that up by, by chucking in more resources. We have to work within the resources that we've got. So let's just return to the 60% target by yep. 2050. You've been sold a bit of a book on that. Uh, hmm? You've been sold a bit of a book on that. The government's been under a lot of pressure yep. uh, to raise the target. It's all very difficult politically. Lord Turner, sort it out for us again. I mean, what's your provisional thinking on uh, increasing that target? Well, let me describe the methodology that we're going to use, and then I'll give you a feeling on the, the, the um, uh, initial thinking. I think the way to proceed is, first of all, to start from a global point of view and then the UK within it. And at the global point of view, you have to synthesize, and all that it is is synthesis, because we're not going to do new scientific work, obviously. It's to, to synthesize and, and, and listen to and pull together uh, you know, and, and, and read and, and summarize the best recent scientific thinking on what is dangerous for the world in terms of degrees uh, centigrade of warming. And I think the answer is, in an ideal world, we wouldn't go above two degrees. Three degrees is getting really worrying, and four degrees, most people would agree, is very, very scary um, indeed. And we'll fine-tune that, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll write out stuff which references best scientific evidence on that, but you know, that's what we'll do on that. The crucial thing then is, what is the stabilization of CO2 and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere which leaves us with a high probability of staying below 2 or 3 degrees or 4 degrees? And those sort of probability tables are, there are versions of them in the Stern report. The Hadley Center produces them. The Hadley Center will be helping us and we will look at some of the other centers as well. We will look at those probability estimates. And they say things like, if you stabilize at 450 parts per million, then uh, you have a 95% a, a, a probability of avoiding going above 4 degrees centigrade, but you still have a 60% probability of going above 2 degrees centigrade. You look at those probability tables. Now, we can't redo those probability tables, but we have to work out what is the range of those probability tables by respected scientists around the world. We then have to put that into a judgment, and this is the bit where it's pure judgment. Because there's two judgments. First of all, what is dangerous, two, three, or four? Secondly, what is an acceptable probability? Because if you want to reduce it to 0.01% probability of going above four degrees centigrade, we'd probably be better be dragging carbon out of the atmosphere already. So there's, there's, there's something there which is entirely judgmental. But out of that, we will make a judgment which says we think the world in total should be on something like this 
trajectory. And we'll then say, that here on some sense of burden sharing, or a variety of principles of burden sharing, is what the UK's target ought to be as our contribution towards that. And that's, that's what we'll do, and you, you can't do more of that. Um, you know, there, there are lots of scientists who have to do the underlying work for that, but the synthesis work is to pull that together. Um, I think it's highly likely that we will suggest that 60% is not enough. Now, here's why. Uh, the 60% target came when the Royal Commission on Environmental uh, Pollution uh, reported in 2000, um, and uh, that was a figure they came up with at that time. Since then, two things have happened. First of all, I think in the scientific community, there has been an increasing understanding of the sheer complexity of the climate system and the presence of amplifying feedback loops within it, which mean that if you go above a certain level of temperature, you are in danger of then accelerating away. And that pushes you towards much greater caution than before. And so people like the Hadley Centre are now really questioning whether 550 parts per million, which some people used to think was an acceptable uh, stabilisation part, that is ex acceptable, and they're talking about 450 parts per million. So that's one thing that's changed. If anything, we know that since the 60% was discussed, the science has been pushing us towards more worry rather than less worry. Uh, secondly, the total level of emissions in the world is going up significantly faster than we then anticipated because of the faster rate of growth and the very high carbon intensity of growth of, in particular, India and China. And therefore, I think we are increasingly aware uh, of the pace at which their emissions are, are growing. And therefore, we don't have the luxury of, as it were, saying, well, we'll get the developed world down to a sort of semi-adequate level by 2050, and then to a really adequate level by 2100, and the rest of the developing, the developing world will catch up with us in the late 21st century. Uh, the fact is that China could have a higher level of per capita emissions than Europe by 2020 or 2025, uh, so they are going to have to be on a downward path, uh, and are we. Um, so there's, there's much more emissions being put out earlier than we thought, uh, and that again argues that the target is almost certainly going to have to be more stretching than 60%. And I think the Prime Minister said that in a speech before uh, Christmas. However, I do think it is a perfectly sensible thing to hand to the committee to an express point of view on, rather than simply leap into, let's not do 60, let's do 80. Because I think there is a value, even if we do end up simply saying, yes, 80% was, was the right figure, in setting out the reasoning of why it is, and also perhaps exploring a set of alternatives, because we don't have to say 60 or 80. We could say 70. We could say 70% in 2050, but 90% by 2070. We could say 70% as a UK unilateral commitment, but 85 as part of an international uh, a agreement. And I think it's sensible to give the committee the, the task of thinking through all that. But I would be very surprised if we simply come back and say 60% is absolutely fine. End can of story. I, just before we leave that point, I, I can understand the macro breakdown, the burden sharing, and the arrival at a more demanding target. That was certainly a conclusion that this committee reached when it looked at the bill originally. But coming from the other way around, bottom up, practically how are we doing yep. in this country, I'm still concerned because at the moment 
all of our target setting seems yeah. to be on a sort of simple linear progression of 1% a year. If we go back from 1990 through to 2050, that's what we've got to do. Yeah. But we're running behind yeah, already. we are running behind. And yeah. we made our biggest leap forward by the move to gas-fired yeah. power stations. We know that domestic emissions are still rising. Yeah. We know that we haven't cracked the transport emissions. Yeah. We're about to add in aviation and shipping. Yeah. And I'm struggling to understand... It's all right ramping up the target to 80, but how much of your yeah. recommendations going to be informed, but can we actually yeah, do should, it? Uh, we, I, I should have added that further in relation to looking at what the world needs to do and what the UK should do within it by 2050. We will also set out a technological vision of what is going to be possible by 2050. So we will be talking about the different technologies which are currently available or might be available in future at different costs to drive down uh, our, uh, our emissions. I think the answer is there is a high degree of confidence that it is possible uh, with one tricky area. The trickiest area, bluntly, is international aviation because so far there is no clear technological fix to international aviation. At least at some cost, it is possible to decarbonize pretty much the whole of electricity production if you use all the different technologies which might be available, which includes renewables, can include nuclear, can include carbon capture and storage. And, of course, there are supporters of all three of those technologies, but we start from a point of view that all three of those are on the slate of things that you can use. It is possible to do that, and if you can decarbonize electricity production, ultimately you can decarbonize surface transport as well, because you can run all your, all your cars on electricity. Uh, aviation is more tricky. I think, though, the most difficult thing in the doability is not actually 2050. It's 2020. I think it is more difficult to describe the path whereby we are going to get to 26% by 2020, or indeed to the sort of level that we ought to be at by 2020 to do on good progress to 2050, uh, than it is 2050, because, simply because one is 12 years away, the other is 42 years away. So th there are simply some constraints in the short term. If you want nuclear as part of the mix, you have to start acting pretty soon to have them on stream by 2020. If we want renewables to be in the electricity mix to be in line with the 20% by 2020 renewable energy target, we have really got to start freeing up some of the planning constraints and grid connection constraints, which at the moment are creating a, a big bottleneck. And these are not technical doability things. They are simply speed of implementation things. And that, I think, is the, the biggest worry about how rapidly we can start doing that to hit the 2020 target. Well, I think it is good for it to be stretching. Uh, it's, certainly, it's certainly doable by buy-in of credits. Um, and I think, I think it's good that we've said, even if we can't find a way to do it all domestically, we are going to buy in the credits. Now, my colleague in the Lords, uh, David Putnam, described buying in credits as a get-out-of-jail-free card. I did point out to him that it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a, it's a, a get-out-of-jail uh, 
$40 a ton uh, a, a, a card. So it's not, it's not costless, and that is a discipline. And indeed, that's a discipline on government, because if it isn't brought in within the EU ETS, it has to be government-to-government purchases within CDM. And you know, the Treasury is going to think carefully about that. So I think it's very good that we have a target of 26%. Having said that, let's be clear that the, what the target which is compatible with the European Union's 30% with an international arrangement, or which is a reasonable passage path towards, say, 70% by 2050, will have to be higher than 26%. So let me ask you a final question, which is the call for evidence that you put out last November. I mean, presumably you've had a lot of responses. Yeah. Just give us a feel of uh, how many responses and... Uh, uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I have a man behind who, if I'm allowed to, is. <coughs> okay. We had a couple of hundred in addition to the climate change bill uh, consultation. Yeah. And indeed, we used the people who put in written consultations at that stage as the basis for the invites for the stakeholder events which we have just held in London, Cardiff, uh, a, a Glasgow and Belfast. And, and do you think uh, that consciousness is changing, that the public mood has changed and people really take this now on as a serious issue? I think people are taking it on as a serious issue. I think there is a window of opportunity for political leadership to take advantage of that. And I think if we don't take advantage of it and don't have clear policies, um, we may end up with exhaustion level and we may find that some of that public commitment dissipates over time. But right at the moment, my judgment is that actually there may be a greater willingness among the public to accept bold policy actions than sometimes is, uh, is believed at political level. Right, three quick supplementaries, David Drew, Lynn Jones and David Lapper. Now you haven't mentioned rationing. Rationing. Personal carbon allowances, which some of us feel, certainly in the field of uh, you know, air transport, absolutely yep. inevitable. I mean, is this too political for you, or are you going to have the guts to say, look, you can have all this trading, you can have all these wonderful technological solutions, but unless individuals and households are prepared to accept some level of rationing, we haven't got a hope in hell of getting to the sort of figures and carbon reduction we really need to get to. Uh, I think that is an issue which we will look at later, and, uh, you know, there's a degree of... Uh, but you've said yourself, the difficult time is there is 2020. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I doubt if it is necessary to hit the 2020 targets. I think there is, I think there is a very, very long-term issue if there isn't a technological fix available on uh, international airlines that we may find out that the unrationed level of uh, international uh, airline traffic in 2050 uh, in itself uh, might put out more carbon emissions than the absolute maximum that the whole world will have at that stage. Now, of course, there is one answer to that, which you simply put it as part of an EU uh, of a global emission trading scheme at that time. The price is the price, and you ration through price. But if there is no a technological fix to uh, aviation, uh, you may have to limit it in the long term, either by a personal ration system or by a price. And indeed, of course, a personal rational system with uh, free trading of those ration tickets is just a price by another mechanism. 
Okay, Lynn? Yeah, shouldn't, shouldn't we, or shouldn't you, stop talking about burden sharing and start talking no. about opportunity yeah. grabbing? Yes, um, I think that, funnily enough, we were having exactly this debate at the Climate Committee last week. I, I guess the, the terminology of burden sharing uh, is the technical term which has been used at EU and international level for once you've got an EU target of 20%, do you take 15% and do you take 30%, etc.? Um, I think I accept entirely that it is an unfortunate term uh, which it implies that there is some massive economic cost, which I don't believe that there is, and which does not stress some of the benefits. So the answer is I was probably failing to uh, remember one of our conclusions from our committee just last Thursday when we said that we want to start moving using a word other than burden sharing. Right. David? Opportunity sharing. Opportunity uh, sharing. Uh, in yeah. view of what you've said about public acceptance and, yeah. and willingness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, I prefer sharing. Yeah. Oh, you say the Thatcherite agenda if you like. Just a, a minor point of detail about the responses that you received. Your, 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 your colleague behind you yeah. said something like 200. Yeah. I think. Sorry. Uh, could you just give us a, a flavour of the, the range? Of organisations. Uh, well, well, David Kennedy. David Kennedy. David Kennedy is the. You're, you're on the record now, David. The head of the Secretariat, so I suggest he. he I, I'm, gives I'm just interested in the range of, say, the organisations or sectors that responded to. Was there a preponderance of any kind of different sorts? Or was it, or was it all the usual suspects? It, it was the usual suspects. It was business who has an interest here. It was NGOs, it was academics, it was across the board. It was, it was the same range that responded to the Climate Change Bill consultation. Uh, and uh, just a final point on that, what balance of it was scientific-based research uh, response and uh, how much of it was based on economics or other issues? I think it was uh, predominantly based on the latter, so economics and policy as opposed to the science. Thank you. Then? ask you about cumulative um, emissions, but I think earlier on you, you talked about the need to analyse the trajectory in which yeah. we need to, to move, and you talked about starting with the global trajectory yeah. and then apportioning yeah. it. Um, how, how you, does that define exactly what you're going to do, and do you think that we should recast the targets in terms of cumulative emissions, or will you take yeah. account of the trajectory in saying what you think the annual targets should be? We will take account of the required process on cumulative emissions in suggesting what the budget-by-budget uh, budget period emissions should be. Now, of course, that is most important at the global level, and, and it returns to the point I made earlier that one of the things that has happened uh, since the Royal Commission report in 2000 is the pace of growth of the emissions from China and India in particular, which simply means that the accumulation of emissions uh, over the last eight years is simply higher than we anticipated. Um, and certainly when you're dealing with it at global level, a... You, you need to think about not simply a, a, a point in 2050, but the, the accumulation uh, from, from here to there, uh, and there's absolutely no value in proceeding on the basis of 
uh, oh, well, we want 70% by 2050, and then we run a least cost optimization model that tells us that the least cost way to get there is to do nothing till 2049 and then suddenly reduce, which, which is the somewhat absurd results that can come out if you use uh, least cost optimization models to, uh, yeah, to uh, uh, mechanically. So we will be thinking at the global level not only about how low it has to be by 2050, but what the path from here to there has to be. And if that path requires early reductions, I don't think it's okay for the UK to say, well, that's what we want the world to be, but we will back-end our reductions. That is not a reasonable contribution, and it's not a, uh, it's not a credible negotiating stance in international negotiations. So in, in brief, yes, we will be looking at the, the trajectory, both in terms of its technological doability and whether you have to make progress early in order to be technologically on a path to a low level, but also its, its implications for cumulative emissions. Is there any point in having the upper limit for the 2020 target? Uh, the upper limit for the 2020 target has now been removed oh. in the Lords, so it's up to the oh. government, uh, and I think the government has accepted that amendment. Yes. Yeah, so, so the, there is no upper think, limit. But do you think there was any point in it? Well, the government argued... They, they told us there was. Well, they, they argued that it at least made people think that the midpoint was 29 uh, if you said it was 26 to 32, whereas the danger if it's 26 is everybody thinks that it's really 26 rather than at least 26. I think it's incumbent on us not to believe that at least 26 means that we can say 26, so that's great. I don't, I don't think I need to ask my next question. I think it's really important. Well, can, can I just carry on from there? Because in the advice you're going to be giving on the setting of the first three carbon budgets, one thing that I, I'm struggling to understand is there was a long debate about whether we ought to have annual targets. And again, this committee didn't agree with that. But you've got to be able to measure on a continuing yeah. basis whether you're on track and you've used the word trajectory, but are you going, I won't pin you necessarily now, but are you going to define what the trajectory ought to look like in concert with the setting of each of the three budgets? Well, we will recommend a trajectory from here to 2020 in the sense of what the first year, five-year budget should be and the second and the third. So yeah. that is a trajectory at that level. Now, what I don't think we will do is then say, well, you didn't ask for annual budgets, but here's what we imply within it. However, I think when we get to our annual reports on progress towards budgets, a starting point will be to say it would not be daft to assume that in order to be on progress towards the next budget, something like a roughly equal reduction from annual reduction from budget one to budget two would be sensible. And if you were running behind that roughly equal amount, that would raise questions that you would expect but, but us we, to comment on. we are on. running behind at the moment. Well, and are you going to, therefore, in the budget setting process, when are you going to start moving towards catch-up? Well, we are going to start from the present level, and we're going to say it's going to have to be 26% below that, at least 26% below that, by 20, no, no, at least 26% below the 1990 level. By 2020, we will take the present level, and within our work program, what we had said is our starting point is um, equal annual percentage reductions from now to 2020. You set that out, and you really need a reason for diverging from that. 
right? Well, why has it got to be equal? Because we're back to where we started with a linear progression. Well, the answer is, I think methodologically, you need, I think, to start with, if you knew nothing, right? If you knew nothing at all, if you knew nothing about the pace at which um, uh, power, gener power stations are going to run off and new investment possibilities are going to emerge, if you knew nothing about when it was feasible for new policies to come in, if you knew nothing about when the EU ETS is going to really bind, it would be a reasonable thing to say that if you want to hit a target by 2020, and this is your starting point, a roughly equal annual reduction might be a sensible way to get there. What you then do is say, right, but there might be all sorts of reasons why it is sensible to diverge from that, either up or down. And at that stage, you feed in the runoff of the life of the existing power generators, the timing at which existing policies already committed to are going to be in place, the EU uh, a environment, the... the feasible limits to how fast windmills could be built even if you, you know, declared that they were to be built in large number tomorrow. And that then you have to feed in to make a judgment on whether the path that you recommend is faster or lower than the, as it were, okay. zero knowledge sensible stance, which I think would be a straight, a straight line on a piece of log paper, not a straight line on a piece of normal paper. Well, we, we'll, we'll look forward way. to the comparison between straight lines and reality when the, when the job gets moved. <laughs> Constant we, percentage annual reduction. Okay, if we move on from there to, the, again, a practical situation, you're reporting to DEFRA, yep. but there are other key players, Deber, Transport, yep. to name but two, in the climate change mix. And one of the things that I would like to know whether the committee is going to do is to also, within the budget framework, provide some form of sectoral analysis, sectoral target setting, so that you can see who's contributing and who isn't yep. to the general track of progress. Yes, yes we are. Uh, first of all, we are required to set out uh, how much of the emissions reduction should come from... Uh, the EU emission trading scheme and how much should come from all other things in the non-traded sector of the economy where non-traded for this purposes means carbon trading. Uh, but secondly, we will certainly comment on within an overall budget how much of that we think might come from transport, how much of that we th might come from power generation, uh, how much from insulating houses, etc. Because it isn't possible to tell a story of a credible budget by 2020 without describing at that level of detail what it is that's going to happen. So we will be doing that, and that is why we have, will be having an extensive uh, uh, interface with the relevant department. So I have already met with the Secretary of State for Transport. I will be shortly be meeting with the Secretary of State at, at Burr. Uh, the uh, head of the Secretariat, Mr. Kennedy, uh, and the Secretariat have regular and formally defined uh, links with the civil servants in those other departments. So we will be uh, very aware of the policies that they have in place. We'll be, we will be in a discussion and dialogue with them about the different policies, and we will end up commenting on the sectoral mix. David? Aren't you very impressed already with the confusion of policy instruments out there? I mean, we did our report on the citizens' agenda, and the simple message that we got back was people don't really understand 
what it is they're entitled to if they want to convert their house to solar panels. I've got a constituent wrote to me yesterday, he's trying to put a, you know, a borehole in. Yep. Um, he said if he was in Scotland, he'd get at least a third of it paid for. In the U in, here in England, he doesn't know if he's going to get any money for this at all. There is a, a panoply of different uh, initiatives out there, but knowing what is really happening is in, immensely confusing. Yep. Can you well, sort this out? Well, <laughs> clearly... <laughs> Clearly, clearly one of the things that we are going to do at an early stage is look at the range of policies that are in place, look at the estimates of the impact that they are going to produce, and we are going to have to have a point of view of the credibility of those estimates, because there's no point of us setting, recommending a budget uh, on the basis of the fact that policy A is going to produce some result, unless there is a credible reason why it might produce some result. I think I would accept that one of the challenges for government policy looking forward is going to have a, a clearly understandable set of, of policies uh, for people. Um, I think there are some sectors where it's probably working better than others. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the what is now called CERT, and used to be called EEC, and is sometimes called the supplier obligation, uh, within which may itself lay a story about communication, that we have these different acronyms for the same thing. Uh, it, it, but if you look at that, that, that does produce numbers because there is a requirement on uh, the, the, the utility companies to go and identify lower-income people and to actually do things um, in, in their houses. I think when you move outside the group of lower-income, fuel-poor, whom the, uh, the uh, energy companies are approaching on a proactive basis and ask individuals of medium income what level of support they can get from government subsidy, etc., I think you are right that the degree of knowledge would be very small. And, of course, what is also the case is that the degree of knowledge not only of where to go in government, but where to go to providers who can provide any sort of you know, one-stop shop is, is pretty poor as well. And that is a challenge for, uh, for government because... We know that the technical analysis always tells us that there is a huge opportunity to reduce emissions, not only at low cost, but at negative cost, i.e. at benefit to the individual and the economy, in the area of, for instance, home insulation. Home insulation. We know that on the, the cost curves, as they're called, this is a bit of the, uh, the negative cost bit of the cost curve. You do it and the individual is actually better off than they were than before, and GDP is higher than it was before. Um, the challenge uh, is going to be how do we make those, those, uh, zero, those positive return projects happen, and the challenge for us as a committee is going to be how much of that technically possible you know, negative cost, positive benefit uh, uh, actions do we assume can be achieved? Because, of course, if they were easy to achieve, they've been achieved already if they give a positive return. I mean, you have to ask why, if they're a positive return, haven't they been achieved already? It's because there's all sorts of barriers of understanding and hassle factor and difficulty uh, that prevent uh, people going out and insulating their house and 18 months later having more money in the bank than they had to start with. Is it the role of your committee to consider these things? It is the role of our committee, certainly, to, co to consider the range of policies which are in place because... 
uh, and, and the, the effectiveness of those policies because without that we cannot recommend what is a credible budget and there is no point in us simply saying well we think the budget by 2020 should be XYZ uh, without being able to tell a story of a credible path from here to there Okay, commenting on an awful lot of government policies aren't you? I want well, to take two quick supplementaries one from Patrick and one from Peter Economics of this, and, and I seek some clarification, uh, Lord Turner. Now, you, you referred to Stern and also yep. your, your earlier work. Stern yep. and you, others say that uh, dealing with this issue of emissions yep. is affordable. Yep. But I think the argument from Stern was it's uh, affordable if we get on with it. Yep. It's affordable over the whole period of, say, a 40, 50 years if we get on with it now. And the, the longer we delay, the less affordable it will be. And if we do nothing, it could completely disrupt the, the global economy. Um, is there a, a contradiction in there somehow um, that in order to deal with the uh, issue of uh, cumulative emissions, we have to make serious, radical start soon? And your report in yep. December is going to address that in terms of the first three, uh, five-year budgets. Therefore, there will have to be um, expenditure, cost, soon, that isn't being uh, paid for at the moment. People will complain soon about that not being affordable. So uh, there's likely to be resistance. I hope I'm making myself clear. But is your argument going to be, yes, it is affordable, even if people don't think it is, yeah. because if they think that isn't affordable, they've just got to wait a bit longer and see if we do well, nothing. Right. Okay. Uh, I think there is a very compelling case which is set out in Lord Stern's report and other reports that the developed rich economies and ultimately the whole world, uh, can run on a fraction of the carbon emissions that they have at the moment. You know, they can reduce it by 60 or 80% from present per capita levels in, uh, for instance, Europe. And the estimates that he produced are that the cost of that might be between minus 0.5%, i.e. you do a set of things and we're actually better off at the end of the day, through to plus 2.5%, i.e. You know, we do all these things and the GDP in 2050 and ever thereafter is 2.5% below what it would otherwise be. But as I made the point earlier, that simply means that you've slipped by a year uh, the, the rate of increase. And I think that is, a, that is very compellingly uh, proven by the fact that there are lots of costless ways of people changing behavior. There are lots of positive return projects which improve energy efficiency. And even if we can't do those two things, and we have to buy our energy more expensively. It's not so much more expensive. You know, a rich developed economy like the UK only spends about 5% or so of its GDP on energy. Bobs around a bit with the oil price, so I suppose, but think of about 5%. If you have to buy that 40% more expensively than you otherwise would, because all these renewable technologies are 40% more expensive, that's still only 2% of GDP. And it's that very simple back-of-the-envelope calculation which, which roots those figures. I mean, sometimes the best insights in economics can be got off the back of an envelope rather than a, a highly sophisticated model. That's why it's of the order of 1% or 2%, not of the order of 20 or 30 or 40%. What is absolutely right is that in order to do that, 
And in order to have that low cost by that time, we need to get on with driving those technologies now. We need to put the commitment to invest in the array of technologies that they are, whether it be renewable or whether it be nuclear or whether it be carbon capture and storage. Let, let me give you an example of carbon capture and storage. There are three blocks of technology, renewable, nuclear, carbon capture and storage, but one which is going to be absolutely essential is the third, carbon capture and storage. Just given the sheer amount of coal-fired power station, which the Indians and the Chinese are now putting in, particularly the Chinese, if we do not have workable carbon capture and storage in the next 15 years, I think it is highly likely uh, that the world will heat up to three or four degrees. You, know, you can almost say goodbye uh, to any uh, lower target. And at the moment, there's a lot of people simply assuming that carbon capture and storage is available at some time. But it's only going to be available at a reasonable cost if somewhere in the world we get on quickly with driving it through the R&D process and actually illustrating that it works, not in small labs or small demonstration sites, but at scale. And if we make sufficient commitments to driving it at scale, that the engineering resources are available in sufficient number to actually put it in in all these power stations. Because often uh, the pace at which you can deploy a technology is constrained by simply the number of trained engineers or the of companies that are capable of doing this thing. And given the pace at which carbon capture storage is going to be introduced across the world within the next 20 years, very soon we've got to have large numbers of people doing this because they'll only be able to do a certain number uh, each year. So yes, we do have to uh, get on with it. Um, are there going to be costs? Yes, there are going to be costs. I mean, the fact is there are costs already. The cost of electricity in the UK is higher because of the uh, EU emission trading scheme. The cost of carbon is reflected in the cost of electricity. Many people may not know that, but it's true. Maybe a relatively small effect so far compared with the oscillations in the cost of gas, but it is in there. Um, and, you, you know, one has to have a political process and a political leadership to make sure that if there is suddenly a strong opposition to slightly higher electricity prices, we still stick to the path that we're on. Now, that's one of the reasons why there has to be the political management of the fuel poverty issue. Because whereas in relation to middle and high income people, you can say, look, yes, your electricity price has gone up, but ultimately hasn't made much difference to your standard of living. Um, with, at lower incomes, it does. So we, we mustn't, I think the overall thing is we should give people the confidence that the costs are sufficiently small that look back over 50 years, we will hardly see the impact on the rates of growth of the economy. It is not a major shift away from the growth of material prosperity which the market economy gives. But it's still non-trivial and we have to have the political determination to face those, you know, not huge but still non-trivial costs. Peter Silsby, David, really on the political determination that I wanted to ask a question because you say you've met with uh, secretaries of state and yeah. civil servants and some of the other departments that yeah. are uh, going to be affected. I don't know whether this is actually capable of a generalised answer, but I mean, do you actually think that in some of those other key departments there is as yet a realisation of the scale of the challenge that's going to face them and the policy implications that they might have to, uh, have to deal with? Um, my impression so far um, is that there is. Uh, I, I think in particular the, the commitment last year to a very stretching 
renewable energy target has made uh, Burr aware that it has to look at things perhaps more radically than it previously might have. And I think the, there is a growing awareness, I think, across government that the, the climate bill is quite a radical thing to have done. I mean, I know we can all have esoteric debates about what it means for a government to place a legally binding constraint on itself, and lawyers can have a field day on that. But I think the political reality of it is that once we have these legally binding targets, they are going to create a very strong external discipline on government. And I think, I think that is, is something that, across the board, departments, you know, not just at Secretary of State level, but at the uh, civil service level, are increasingly aware of. Paddy, do you want to see with adaptation? No, no. Can we just ask on the structure of government, don't you think there ought to be one climate change cabinet level minister full stop? You've got the uh, committee that you're chairing, you've got the Office of Climate Change, it's such an important job that if you had a cabinet minister who was in charge of climate change and had the sanction on the budgets of subordinate departments who could deliver the solution, you may have more focus than the disparate situation that we have to which Peter Salisbury uh, adverted a moment ago. Well, I, I think even if you do that, you have to realise that that person is going to have to work through other departments. I mean, at, at the end of the day, we're going to have some people in charge of transport, we're going to have some people in charge of building regulations, there's going to be a treasury driving tax decisions, there's going to be a whole set of rural and farming issues which uh, govern a uh, farming practice, etc. So, if you declare that there is a Minister for Climate Change, unless you give them about sort of 40% of the entire government, they are going to have to work through other things. Now, what I, uh, the answer is there may at some stage be legitimate machinery of government issues uh, about how you, how you drive sufficient change, but ultimately they are going to have to come down to some process either of you know, the Prime Minister deciding what the priorities are between different uh, competing uh, 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 secretaries of state if they have different points of view. And if you had a climate change secretary of state, they're only going to be powerful insofar as when they end up with a debate with the departments, the Prime Minister backs their judgment. So I don't exclude the possibility, but I have to say at least for a couple of years and until that is clearly an agenda that somebody puts on uh, our, us to think about, uh, if and when that occurs, we might express a point of view on it, but I think we have lots of other things to do before we get to that, and it may not be ever appropriate for us to be the people who opine on that. Okay, David Drew. Now, information is power, yeah. and I wonder where you're going to get your sources of information from. Are you prepared to make yourself unpopular with some of the things that you're going to say? Have you heard the word with David Putnam about making a film of this, or have you got your own TV series <laughs> lined up already? Because, I mean, I know it sounds, and it is laughable, but if, to communicate with the great yeah. British public, yeah. you're going to have to actually think, use all the means available to you, including some, dare I say, hectoring about, you've got to do this, chaps, otherwise we're all doomed. Um, so, this yeah. is all on the agenda, is it? Well... I, when you started talking about information, I thought you meant something else, but let, let me comment on the something else first. Uh, we are reliant on information, and one of the things we have to do is double-check the information and debate the information. For instance, 
we start with a baseline forecast of what will happen to emissions if you do nothing, which comes from a model which Burr runs, and we have to use it, but we have to use it, but also challenge it, and indeed we've had an external set of consultants having a sort of outside-in look at that model and saying, well, you know, here's some, uh, here's the bits which appear clear, and here's the bits where judgments have been made which you might want to put the judgment the other day, the other way. And so, across a whole series of technical inputs, whether it be baseline emissions or cost models, we will be using models that exist already, uh, but we will also have to challenge that either within the team or use external consultants to help us challenge that to see whether they are at all debatable. Um, the thing you were focusing on mainly, though, was external communication, as it were, selling the story. I mean, we will have uh, some communication expertise, but it will, not be, it will not be huge. And I think we will have to play that by ear as we, um, as we proceed. Um, I, I think that at the appropriate time, there is a role for the chair... Uh, of the Climate Committee, which is to be involved in the public debate about how we have to change, uh, in the same way that there it's is a make role... better television it, than fits in the, the, Well, the, it's in the, the same way that there's a role for the, you know, the Governor of the Bank of England to be telling people why, you know, even though increase in interest rates aren't always loved, they're, you know, they are required for the long term. So, I think we will have to think about to what extent we need uh, external uh, uh, communication. But yes, I think at the appropriate time, and it may be when we produce our budgets, we will, or, or the, the 2050 target, we will have to uh, explain why we are recommending what we are recommending and uh, explain it in ways which is not just uh, technically understandable, but it, it has some uh, ability to be uh, part of a wider public debate. Kevin? Yeah, indeed, thank you. Yes, I mean, um, I was <coughs> interested. You made reference to <coughs> the, the conversation you'd had with the, uh, the minister responsible for climate change in the Scottish government. Now, the, your organisation, as you know better than me, is in fact a sponsor, I think is the correct word, yep. by uh, the involved administrations as well as the, yep. the UK government, which is yep. just as well as it. The <coughs> Scottish government uh, envisages bringing forward a climate change bill, I think is the way I put it, probably it's a bit stronger now. Yep. Um, now, it could, of course, uh, choose to set up uh, its own advisory committee. Yep. Um, I suppose there are other things it might choose to do, but I just wonder if you might make a, make a, you know, a comment on that. Yep. Well, we did have these three uh, stakeholder meetings in Cardiff, Glasgow and Belfast within the last two weeks, and we spent a day in each, and we, in addition to holding a sort of two to three hour uh, meeting with the stakeholders obviously we met with the relevant ministers and uh, other groups of people to understand uh, the, uh, the whole background of policy in those areas I, I think and I think it's very good that at devolved level there is a commitment uh, to, to act as well as at UK level uh, I think that is, that is helpful and as you probably know there, there may be a slight bit of sort of competition into this in that it's possible that the Scottish target will simply say we set 80% you know, ahead of the uh, uh, English getting around to it or the UK level getting around to it. Um, I think the challenge and I, in, both, in all three uh, devolved administrations we had very useful discussions about how to make sure that our work and their work uh, was really building on each other rather than duplicating it. 
And I think we found that there was a very intelligent appreciation of what it was sensible for them to do and what it was not sensible uh, for them to do. Um, I think, for instance, um, there is not a great deal that the devolved administrations can do about inputting to the operation of the European Emission Trading Scheme. That ultimately has to be a debate between the UK level as one of the constituent parties of that and the European level. And if there was a lot of second-guessing coming at devolved level of saying, oh, no, no, we think it should be like this or like that, that would be tricky. Now, having said that, there are particular local issues. The, 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 the Welsh are particularly concerned about very heavy industrial users in internationally traded sectors of the economy because of the steel industry at Port Talbot in a way that other areas of the UK are not. So it's legitimate for them to be saying, well, hang on, have you thought about how this is going to work for steel industry competition and simply assuring themselves that that is something we are going to think about in our input to the EWTS. So there are some things like that which are devolved level. I, th I think what is really interesting is for the devolved administrations to focus on the things where they have devolved policy levers. And of course, they do have devolved policy levers. They have planning levers. They have building regulation levers. Uh, the structure of the equivalent of the energy uh, efficiency commitment, or the CERT, is, is at devolved level, with one or two differences, actually, between the degree of devolution uh, and each. And in both Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, actually, we were talking about, we would really encourage them to do really good work on rural areas and farming issues because that's an area where we do need to get into and there hasn't been much work but those have a greater degree of importance uh, in, in those areas. There are for instance where you have a rural dispersed community, you have a lot of people who are off gas grid, um, are often reliant on oil fired uh, central heating. Uh, very inefficient in carbon terms, very expensive and therefore with consequences for, uh, uh, for fuel poverty, where there probably is a greater role uh, for distributed uh, generation, uh, local generation, be it wind, you know, on small scale in the highlands of Scotland or, or, or Wales, uh, than there is in, say, southeast England. So what we were trying to do, uh, and we found we had excellent discussions in each, was first of all understand their whole their, their old framework and make sure that they were aware what we were doing, we were aware what they were doing, and in particular identify areas where they have the levers or where they have a problem, in a, an issue in bigger proportion than it exists at the total UK level, and therefore where... Uh, you know, a particular focus uh, on their side uh, w w would be helpful. So I think we were early days of working out that relationship, but we found, you know, we had very fruitful discussions in each case. Totally good. Thank you. Yeah. Just to uh, draw matters to a conclusion, um, adaptation yeah. and the thought that there might be a subcommittee yeah. of your committee dealing with that. Have you come to any preliminary well, views on that? We, we've never quite seen it as our job to come to a clear view on that. I, I think what I have always said is we are not out there in the market trying to grab uh, adaptation. We, we would be perfectly happy not to have adaptation uh, because we think we have got, frankly, quite enough to do uh, by focusing on the mitigation and budget side. Um, and if we were given adaptation, it would be part of our operation but a 
parallel part of our operation in that we would have to set up a separate committee with the appropriate skills which would be different from the skills which are on uh, the committee which would have been put in place. One might ask one of the people on the present committee to either chair or be on that other committee in order to create uh, a communication bridge, but it would be a parallel set of activities. Uh, and we would also have to define bottom-up the secretariat to support that, which would be a different wing of the secretariat with different skills than that which is there already and would need to be a whole extra set of resources. We cannot, you know, I said earlier we're not after more resources to do our mitigation work, but we need all the resources we've got to do to do our mitigation work. So we would be quite happy, at, we would be quite happy if that job, which is an important job, was given to another separate group of people, um, but we had perfectly sensible communication links with them and maybe the occasional joint meeting, we would also be happy for it to be given as a subcommittee to us, uh, provided we were given uh, the extra resources, and also provided people realize that our timescale for delivering something on that would probably be on a slightly delay. You know, we, you could not put that, I think, into the December reporting deadline that we have and, and you know, expect anything useful out of that. So we are willing to play it either way, and I think it's other, for others to decide. Right. Thank you very much indeed. We very much appreciate the uh, way that you've put across uh, you like, your early activities. It's given us an idea of the flavour of your direction of travel. We'll look forward to seeing how detail emerges, and I'm sure the committee will want to talk to you when you produce your first report to explain how progress is going. And can we thank uh, Mr Kennedy too for his uh, contribution? And uh, we look forward to seeing how you progress and wish you well. Thank you for coming you to be our witness.